so I don't know how familiar you may or may not be with like certain like personality assessments or studies or anything like that. So uh, there's the Myers-Briggs types out there. Maybe you've taken the DISC profile. There's a few out there. Uh, one that's uh, that's uh, kind of kind of uh, you know getting some steam, really becoming more popular. The trend of the of the day now is called the Enneagram. Can I see a show of hands? Anyone heard of the Enneagram? Yeah, a handful of us. Yeah, it's the latest trend in that whole personality thing. Um, a lot of people have just thought it's something that the millennials came up with just so they can talk about themselves even more, um, which, which, you know, I'm a millennial, so like I, I, I kind of get it. Um, but I'm, I'm into it. I just kind of like that kind of stuff, just understanding people a little bit more, even including myself a little bit more. And uh, there are nine types out there, and you know, each type kind of has that like role or descriptor that goes with it. So like type ones, they're the perfectionists, all the way through type nine. I know like type two, they're the helper. Uh, Roger is a type two. We kind of talked about that this week. Uh, like uh, type seven, entertainer. Type nine, peacemaker. So each kind of has a, a few different roles. And uh, I feel like I'm a type five, and they kind of, I think they call that one like the investigator. And uh, it's one of these things that, like, reading about this, not necessarily find out uh, new things about myself, but just uh, kind of uh, things that I, you know, how I process or do things just kind of feel more normalized. Um, if this is different anyway, like Myers-Briggs, that kind of, you know, tracks how you uh, interact with the world. Uh, what I like about the Enneagram 1, it really blends well with the Christian faith, which not any other tests really do that all that well. But the Enneagram, it kind of goes through, like, what motivates you, what makes you tick, just that kind of that inner drive uh, from each of us. Anyway, uh, talking about type 5s or, like, the ones that, that I tend to identify with is uh, type 5s, I'll just talk about myself, uh, I tend to start my day with, um, you know, a, a full battery. I wake up in the morning and my battery is full. And uh, I just like to, you know, hoard energy. I know that, like, if I do too much of one thing or another, then, uh, you know, that battery power is going to go lower throughout the day. And typically, by the end of the day, I am, like, you know, right there at 1% or 2%, and I am done. Uh, not everyone is like that, but just kind of the type 5, we just kind of go through our day with this battery, and we have to be strategic as far as, you know, where are we going to spend that power. So, like, on particularly busy days or busier seasons, like, I can feel, um, you know, drained sometimes, maybe empty just because, you know, a little bit, bit of me has to go over here and a huge chunk of energy or power needs to go to uh, this event or this group of people or this project. And if I'm not careful, um, I can spread myself just a little bit too thin. You know, it's like a little bit of margarine or butter or a very large slice of bread just to be like, just spread too thin. And uh, even if you like, don't have that whole battery thing going on in your own personal life, it's probably not all that much of a stretch to feel like sometimes, maybe even right now, uh, you might feel uh, spread out. <clears throat> Again, like that little bit of butter on a large piece of bread. There's just too much of you in too many different places. Um, you know, it might be like just as far as I'm typically a lot of people like if they're with one group of pers- people like they act a little differently or like different versions of yourself come out and that can be energizing to some of us. It can be really, really draining to others of us. Uh, where I'm getting at is a lot of us feel either fractured or we have lots of different pieces of ourselves and different pockets of our lives. We feel very compartmentalized and uh, we feel just exhausted or we feel tired, or we feel empty. If our life is a fuel gauge, we might feel half full. We might be riding on fumes, just depending how we structured our life. And a popular conversation or a popular um, or common goal for a lot of us is we just kind of have this ache in our souls saying, I wish I could find some balance, some balance in my life. Typically, that's work-life balance, but, you know, maybe it's kid-life balance or hobby-life balance. We're just after all this balanced thing. 
so when we are kind of putting this message series together, we're trying to answer like, you know, big life questions, which is kind of why we I titled this series Life. Uh, we kind of got to this point where like a lot of people, they're just trying to answer that question of how do I balance it all? And, you know, the weekend message is called Tightrope. Uh, but as I was thinking about this, I'm thinking, you know what, as like great as balance sounds, I'm not entirely sure how attainable true balance really is. <clears throat> and I think that's okay. I think that's more than okay. Uh, I was kind of laying that idea of balance alongside of Jesus' promise in John 10, where he says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. So when I compare this promise of Jesus promising a full life in him, along with some of us feeling too spread out or we're committed in too many different places, I'm not thinking that this is exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said, you know, you can have life to the full through me. So how do we live this full life? We're going to kind of put the balance off to the side as kind of a myth. Um, I think when we ask ourselves, how do we balance it all? I think it's really coming down to asking the question, how can I feel healthy? How can I feel unhurried? How can I feel peaceful? So we're going to take those words and we're just going to call that a full life, the right kind of full life. Not necessarily a packed schedule or overextending ourselves, but we just, you know, have that fuel gauge. It's, you know, right there. The needle is at full. So that's kind of where we want to be. So putting balance off to the side, I thought the answer to kind of going down this road might be just the word integrity. And typically when we talk about integrity, we typically equate that with someone having really, really strong character. And that's true. But also looking at this, just the base definition or understanding, having integrity or just being, yeah, having integrity, just like complete oneness, like no division, no compartmentalization. So if you are living a life of integrity or an integrated life, you are the same person wherever you go. Uh, now, a lot of people like, I'll, I'll, give, I'll use my mother as, as an example because she's not here. Um, but I have, I have no bad things to say about my mother, so this isn't anything like that. But, uh, like, and this, everyone does this. Almost everyone does this. Like, you have, like, different versions of yourself depending on who you're with. And we don't even do it on purpose. I don't even know if it's uh, always a bad thing. But, like, I know, like, if, you know, like, if back when we had, you know, the landline, you know, growing up at the house, like, she'd pick up the phone if it was, like, a salesperson or, like, you know, someone from, a, like, a dentist or doctor's office. She, like, had, like, her professional voice, mom's professional voice. Did anyone have that? And I'm like, I'm thinking like, mom doesn't talk like that. Why is she using that like fake voice? Or like if she would like talk to her parents, like with just like a little bit of a different tone. Again, nothing bad, just like, that's not how you sound around the house, mom. So all of this can kind of maybe relate to like maybe just a little bit different wherever we go. And again, it's not always a bad thing. Uh, a lot of it's just like trying to, you know, survive and thrive and just, you know, make sure we're healthy with everybody. Uh, but I want to ask the question, what if we did actually live an integrated life? We were the exact same person wherever we went. I think that could give us a really, really good jump on feeling that and experiencing that full life that Jesus talks about. Uh, you know, just kind of asking the question, what if we were on top of that, not only the same person, but what if we were Jesus followers everywhere that we actually went? Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 5 this morning, and Paul's writing this. It's a pretty general letter. It's six chapters to the church at Ephesus. Some people think this was a circular letter, so, you know, after it went to Ephesus, it would go to, you know, other places, so it wasn't just for just one church in particular. But how it's kind of uh, carved up is the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's very theological and praising God and just talking about how wonderful and magnificent Jesus is. And then the back three chapters, four, five, and six, it's all about, okay, so because Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, and God is great and all that, what do we do about it? How do we live this out? How do we live like it actually matters? Uh, so we're in Ephesians 5 where we get into some of that. And Paul, 
Paul kind of starts off chapter 5. He didn't write chapters himself. That was added later by uh, a bunch of scholars. But he starts off with this line in verse 1. He says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Uh, the church at uh, Ephesus, it was a, a town, you know, I, I forget what the modern day uh, equivalent is. But back then it was, you know, the center of a lot of major trade routes and crossroads and, you know, of, of the known and civilized world. And so there are a lot of different cultures coming in, a lot of different uh, gods and religions coming in, a lot of different practices you could really be distracted with. You could have different versions of yourselves kind of plotted all over the city just because of just this, you know, melting pot of different lifestyles and cultures and ideas. And one thing, I think it's fair to say that Ephesus could very well stand in for a modern-day Las Vegas. Uh, you know, lots of, you know, hedonism. You know, what happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus. Lots of things around that could get you in trouble. Or lots of things around that could uh, just completely take the place of Jesus in your life. So Paul's writing this because most of the believers here, they're pretty new Jesus followers. They're pretty young Christians. And when you're a young Jesus follower or a young Christian, you just need a lot of guidance, a lot of uh, one-on-one care. So Paul is trying to fill that role. So he starts off, hey, if you're going to do anything, imitate God in everything you do. Which sounds great, but it also sounds daunting. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of tattoo that imitate God thing on our brains, on our hearts for the next, you know, half hour-ish. And then we're going to see like, all right, exactly how do we imitate God? And I think Paul lays out three different ways that we can start to imitate God. And if three ways sounds overwhelming, uh, pick one, pick two, but we'll kind of just kind of crawl through this. So how do we imitate God? We'll start here, actually jumping down to verse 15, is just be wise. Or live wisely, live a wise lifestyle. Here's what he writes. Paul writes, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, uh, Paul, he immediately starts, you know, a contrasting list. He says, hey, don't be foolish, be wise. Uh, Don't be uh, filled with alcohol, don't be a drunk, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Lots of contrasting here going on. And so he wants to highlight living a wise lifestyle. And Paul understood like how hard it was to, you know, keep doing everything that the Lord would want you to do. Uh, he, in First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 15, he's kind of writing about this. And Paul writes, he uses this phrase that once he fought with the beasts at Ephesus. And that was a saying way back then, just that phrase, fighting, you know, fought with the beasts at Ephesus. It meant it was just like a euphemism for a wise man's struggle with hedonism. Or a wise man struggled like trying to put that, you know, if it feels good, do it lifestyle off to the side. So Paul gets this. You know, Paul was no stranger to living in the city of Ephesus. So he's not saying this from some ivory tower. He knows what it's like. And he says, you know, this can be done. You can live a wise, godly life even in the midst of this. Um, but he says, you know, be wise, live like those who are wise. And here's how I understand wisdom. I like keeping things simple and portable. Put it in your pocket. Uh, someone who is wise is simply someone who is able to live with skill. 
I think that's a good understanding of wisdom. If you are able to live with skill, that is a mark of wisdom. And I went completely against that this week, just a few days ago on Thursday. Uh, was not living wisely, but played the part of the fool easily. So uh, it was Thursday, and um, my, uh, my fiance and my mother-in-law, they, they came to the building, and they're like, hey, we're going to go for a long walk. Would you like to join us? I said, yes, absolutely. And they looked at my shoes and said, are you sure? I said, yeah, absolutely. They're actually the shoes I'm wearing now. Uh, I was wearing, you know, dress shoes, uh, which they're there to make you, you know, look nice and more professional than you really are. But I just like, you know what? Yeah, we'll just, we'll just go for it. You know, how long of a walk could this be? Uh, turns out longer than what I thought it was is going to be. So we just left here and then just kind of went walking in Settler's Walk. And uh, it was maybe like a mile in. Like I, I used to do a lot of hiking. And so like I know what hot spots feel like on your feet if you're just, you know, having just, you know, your skin's rubbing against the shoe just the wrong way. But I'm like, oh, that's fine. I'm a man. I've dealt with, you know, worse things than this. I'll just go for it. And then we kind of keep walking and I'm just, I don't share this, you know, Jennifer, my you know, soon to be mother-in-law, she's leading the way. And along the way, like I'm like, you know, plodding up ahead and I'm like, oh, that's probably, that's going to be a good place to turn around and walk back to church. And, uh, we'd get there and then, uh, we would keep walking. I was like, oh, this is not exactly how I thought this was going to go. And then it's, it's just to the point of, we, eventually we, we did like a two and a half miles, which honestly, two and a half miles, that's not a long walk. But if you're wearing these, it's a really, really long walk. So I'm just like, you know, maybe kind of feeling blisters form, come back. I just like, really, I was like, this was a mistake. I'm sorry about it. So I get back to the building and I stop walking. And that's when my feet just, you know, completely burst into flame. I was like, ooh. So I like take off shoes and socks. Anyway, um, that night and Friday, I'll just ask, has anyone had to limp on both feet ever before? Because <laughs> that was my reality. Friday, I wore these uh, just boots because like, they allowed me just to more like stomp than actually like arch any feet or move any muscles. Um, I'll just say, I'm fine now. But again, there's nothing, there was no living with skill in wearing these on a two and a half mile walk, even just on pavement. Paul would say, that's foolish. Pursue a life of living with skill. Pursue a life of wisdom. I, I, I like doing this. Anytime I think of someone who's foolish or not living wisely, I think of this picture of this tattoo. We'll see it up on the screen. Have we seen this before? <laughs> no regrets. Whenever I think of unwise living, my mind always goes to that tattoo. So that's how you know what it looks like. Uh, then Paul uses this phrase, you know, make the most of every opportunity. And what that means in his original, you know, language, original writing, it means to rescue or redeem your time. Uh, you know, we've heard that, you know, saying about idle hands, you know, the devil's workshop, that sort of thing. Um, you know, we, 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 we would never do this, but if we were to make a list of like your most boneheaded mistakes or the stupidest things you've ever done, I'm wondering how much of our stupidity has come out of boredom. How much of that just because we had time to sit and think and just maybe let mischief or just plain old sin run its course? You know, everyone has the same amount of time in a day. We all get 24 hours and we can, you know, you know how you spend yours and uh, you know, we can see like, you know, really, really successful people. They somehow make that work. And then others who might live a less than wise lifestyle, you're like, wow, I like, how are you? Like you are not making the most of every opportunity. So downtime, I think, is a wonderful, good, and holy thing. Most of us wish we had a whole lot more of it. But it just comes down to, does any of your time, your schedule, your habits, your routine, does any of it need, need rescuing or redeem? That's what it means, making the most of every opportunity. Are you redeeming or are you rescuing those times or those opportunities? 
I might, uh, yeah, I have time for the eyebrow story. I had a, I have a story in here that, like, if there's time, we might be just on the side of stupid things coming out of boredom. Um, I was a, a junior higher, eighth grade, which, you know, some of you equate less than wisdom with that age anyway. Um, but it was one of those times, like, I just, I was in my brother's room just by myself, uh, just bored out of my mind, and, um, I decided, or maybe I, and it's the junior high brain, so it goes off when it wants to, which is most of the time. And I just like, there's some scissors around me. And again, I'm just by myself. So again, brain is off. Brain is off. So I find myself taking the scissors and like, I get up here to my eyebrows, just like a straight shot. Eyebrows, clip, clip here, clip, clip there. I was like, and I stopped and I put it down. I was like, oh, what did I just do? Because my brain turned back on. And I stood up, looked in the mirror and like, you know, well, two chunks right out of the middle of my my eyebrows. I'm like, oh no, I cannot live this way. I certainly can't go to school because it doesn't take much for the, you know, the junior entire school to, you know, find the weak person out and just, you know, make their life miserable. So I got to do something. Um, so what I did each morning before school, and no one figured this out. No one figured this out. I got away with it. But each morning before school, go to the bathroom, lock the door, take those same scissors, cut just a little bit off the top, and then take my Elmer's glue stick. A <laughs> little bit here, a little bit there, and then just, you know, apply. And that worked for two to three weeks. And then my eyebrows were back. All that to say, that was a time where the opportunity needed to be rescued or redeemed. So good. I'm glad we had time for the eyebrow story. I have it in here. Eyebrow story? Question mark? We had time. <clears throat> he finished this section just saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, in this case, he said, don't be filled with, don't be you know, drunk on wine or alcohol. That was prevalent there. He says, you know, instead, fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. And if you want to know what that feels like, in Galatians 5, they're the fruits of the Spirit. You can sing the song. There's peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and the rest of them. Those are kind of evidences of, yeah, I'm kind of living a life that's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he ends it with just pretty much saying, give thanks to God, which that could be a message all unto itself. Um, I will just say that probably living a life of gratitude or having a grateful posture, um, it's probably undervalued and it would go a long way as far as a peaceful, full life. So I'll just say that piece about it. So that's the be wise section of how we can imitate God and you know, have that full, the right kind of full life in Jesus. Uh, then I would say Paul's like, hey, on top of being wise, be bold. This is verse 8. We're kind of going backwards, working our way up. But Paul writes this. He says, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. I love that phrase, just those three things right next to each other. It says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So Paul says, live as people of light. I'm going to substitute that for living uh, boldly or being bold. You know, people who are good and right and true and obvious in those traits of being good, right, and true. Uh, that darkness metaphor and that light metaphor, it is all over Scripture, especially in the New Testament. Um, it's in the Gospels a lot. I think it's John's Gospel talks a lot about uh, darkness versus light. Here's what that means. You would probably have a good sense of it, but somewhat just darkness as it's understood scripturally here. Darkness is simply um, there being zero spiritual truth anywhere. 
So someone who's living in darkness is, you know, they don't, they don't know the truth of Jesus. They don't know the grace of Jesus. Uh, they don't know at least, you know, the biblical sense of right and wrong and good and true and pure, things like that. It's not that they're stupid. It's just they're ignorant. They haven't come into contact with that. Either they haven't heard it or someone hasn't told them. But living in spiritual darkness is there is no spiritual truth anywhere to be found in their lives. That's what darkness is here. And Paul says, you were once full of darkness. You once lived this way, but not anymore. He says, now you have light from the Lord. And that light, and using this dark light metaphor, that light is simply having the true knowledge of Jesus. You've heard the gospel. You believe it. It's part of you now. And these two, again, are in contrast with one another. We all know, just you know, put metaphors aside, light and darkness cannot coexist. Light will always uh, win out and expose darkness. That's what living boldly can look like. And he says, you know, determine what pleases the Lord. This just means to test or examine, do a lot of homework. You know, there's something, um, the sense of diligence or effort is here. You know, carefully determine what would please Jesus. Put effort there. Then he says, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. And he said, instead, expose them. So he's saying, it's not enough not to participate in evil things. He says, you need to expose them as well. And this is that word expose is something that I wanted to do some digging, some research on, because uh, when we think of the word expose, it kind of sounds maybe a little aggressive. It sounds maybe uh, less than loving. Um, I thought of uh, Dwight Schrute from The Office and thinking about this. He had that quote that, what did he say? He says, I love catching people in the act. That's why I always whip open doors. That's kind of the sense I had when this word expose came up. Uh, it's not a gotcha moment. You know, it's not catching somebody in the act of something. It's not pointing a finger. It's not, um, it's not just you know, only calling attention uh, to what they're doing wrong. So it's not so much exposing as we know and understand and use that word. Exposing evil, Paul understood that to be a loving thing. There's nothing accusatory or judgmental about it. So in the original Greek, the original text, this is more of a compound word. It isn't saying gotcha. It means to expose light or expose evil deeds. It's to convince and restore that something is not right, that something wrong is going on. So again, it's not the pointed finger. It's not saying gotcha. It's saying to whomever you love, whoever's in your life, it's saying, I've noticed this about you, or I've noticed fill in the blank, is everything okay? Or I've noticed this is going on. Do you see how this is? harmful to you? Or do you see how this is less than loving either to yourself or others? So Paul says, it's not enough not to participate in this sort of thing, but convince them and restore them. You know, use, be love in action. It's again, it's the, I've noticed this about you. Is everything okay? I'm here for you. We can talk about this. I don't see a trace of judgment or accusation or finger pointing anywhere in this. That's how Paul would have us live boldly and in light. You know, it's the, it's the exact same thing if this entire room was dark and it's just turning on a light. It's just seeing what's already there. So again, convincing and restoring. One thing that we're excited about kind of living this, you know, living as people of light and living boldly is we are really, really excited for next Sunday's Baptism Sunday. You know, we, we, uh, we're in contact. There's rumors of up to like, you know, 15 to 20 different people here in the life of Southwest. They've been thinking about this. They've been praying about this. They've been on the fence for a while. And just as a, as a staff, you know, Roger and I were talking. It was like, we haven't done a Baptism Sunday in a little while. And we're like, sometimes we just need that. People just need that little extra step. Like, hey, you don't have to do it this day, but we want to take that option out like this is the day for it. And uh, <clears throat> here's what I'll say. I'll put this out here. Um, you know, many of you, you know, you, you've been baptized, you've been immersed even in this uh, tub over here. 
if you are on the fence, if you've been thinking about this, praying about this, you know, I, I don't know a lot of your journeys. I know some of your stories, your journeys, kind of where you're at. Everyone on this side of being immersed in baptism, they know what this light feels like, and they know what it's like to put darkness behind them, you know, to get rid of a life that had zero spiritual truth or value anywhere. And they are now living as children of light. They're being obedient to God in this way. Let me put out the appeal to whoever, you know, needs to hear this, even if it's just one person in the room. If you are considering you know, saying yes to Jesus, you've been praying for it, you've been thinking about it, you've been weighing the scriptures, examining your own life, let me be the one to say, take at least one step forward today. If you want to get baptized today, we'd be thrilled. But also, what we don't want to happen is for you to sit in the chair and say, uh, yeah, I'm still thinking about it. If you're thinking about it, a lot of people like to think about it just to themselves. Here's what I'll say. Reach out to myself. Reach out to Roger saying, hey, I have this question. I have this hesitancy. You know, taking step toward Jesus, like every step toward Jesus is a right and good and obedient and holy step. But one thing I think that Jesus would suggest against is just staying where you are. Even if you're like, you know, I'll probably get there one day, but, you know, maybe not, not today, not next week. I'll say this. Reach out to someone that you love, you trust, anything like that. Again, could be a small group leader around here, an elder, a staff member. If you're on that fence or considering, at least reach out either in person or uh, via email. Ask a question. Seek some clarification. You know, just kind of let's talk through where you're at. And if you're like, you know what, honestly, like I've been ready. I just haven't put a date on the calendar. You know, reach out. We would love to baptize you and so many more on May 26th next week. We're going to be excited. It's going to be a fantastic weekend of celebration. So we're at Be Wise, Be Bold. And we thought we could, it would be well to end with, let's be loving. Ephesians 5, uh, verse 2. Paul writes this. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. There's that thankfulness, that gratefulness again. He says, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. He starts out saying, you know, love has no place in sexual immorality, impurity, or greed. Um, If you think so, there's a place in that, then there's a skewed uh, definition of love or understanding of love in our minds. Uh, it includes just obscene stories and humor and jokes in here as well. Uh, just those kind of things, they're, they're not for us. We've put those to the side. They belong in darkness. Those practices, those habits, that lifestyle, uh, they just, they're not for us anymore. They're not for God's people. They have no place among uh, God's people. But he contrasts that again. says, instead of those things, uh, be thankful. Again, gratitude covers so much of, uh, of that. 
And he talks about some greedy people. He throws that in with sexual immorality and impurity. And he says, you know, the greedy people. And he talks about just, you know, greedy people specifically that, uh, you know, these people, they won't, you know, inherit the kingdom of God. They've chosen to worship the things of this world. You know, these people, you know, idolatry, that's kind of a churchy word. You know, anything that we, you know, really need or want, we probably wouldn't say that we're worshiping them. But whatever we can't get enough of is our God. I've heard that before. Uh, he's just saying, you know, the people, the greedy ones, you know, they're people, they've already chosen their God, and it's not Jesus. We can only have one. Jesus says we can only serve two masters. Anyway, verse 6, he says, don't be fooled. He says, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. And uh, I don't think any words in Scripture are wasted. I think he says, don't be fooled, because I think humans have a tendency to be fooled. We can be easily convinced of any number of things. Uh, one thing, you know, he says, you know, people who try to excuse these sins. Other versions talks about, don't listen to these people who have these empty words, who try to pull you away from this, try to pull you away from truth. Um, and I would say that even well-meaning Jesus followers have tried to excuse certain sins um, in order to be more gentle. Um, in order, like what they've been well-meaning and saying, hey, it's not that big a deal. That's pretty much the modern-day translation. People who try to excuse these sins, they're the ones that say, it's fine, it's not that bad of sin. Which I'll even say that I've been guilty of that in my pastoring just because if someone's in pain or doing something, you want to appear gentle, you want to appear loving. But here's the trick. Here's the thing that we need to keep front and center, and uh, we can't lessen this. Any type of sin is a big deal. I will say some have different consequences than others, but every sin is a very, very big deal and needs to be treated seriously. Because the second that we try and minimize or make it even just a little bit okay, then Jesus has not won. Jesus has not won over in our hearts in that moment. So let's just be mindful and careful and even diligent in how we treat and understand and talk about sin uh, in our own selves, but also with people around us that we love. Then he says, don't participate in the things these people do. Here's what that means. Um, don't participate. Certainly, like, don't share in what they're doing. But he also means don't be around them. Uh, I was thinking back in high school. Um, I, I graduated. I went to high school in Indianapolis. And one of my teachers, Mr. Shive, he was talking about a time he was either in high school or college. Must have been college. But he was at whatever, a, a party or whatever, where there was a lot of drinking going on. Uh, he has never drank in his life. He's a teetotaler. Alcohol has never touched his lips. But he was around a lot of people, like many of his friends did. And, you know, in the next day, like someone he knew is like, hey, I saw you drinking last night. I think it was like, you know, I even, hey, I saw you drunk last night. Like, no, absolutely not. Like, I've never drank in my life. But he was around people who were. And even though, you know, he didn't do anything wrong, it was one of those perception is reality. And I'm not saying, you know, don't have, what we don't want to do, we don't want to have friends who are only Christians. Um, I don't think that aligns with the gospel. Uh, we just look at who Jesus spent his time with and even who some of his friends were. They weren't all holy people. But in this case, you know, again, Paul is writing to a bunch of young Jesus followers. And I think young Jesus followers, they just need that extra uh, caution, that little bit of extra protection uh, for someone older who's just like, hey, you, you need to know what's going to derail you. You need to be aware of what's going to take you away from Jesus. So in this case, like, hey, not only don't share in this, but it's probably a good idea, at least for this part in your journey, not to be around these kind of people who are going to take you away from Jesus when you are such a fragile, uh, you know, fresh in your walk with Jesus. So that's what he's talking about here. Uh, we're, gonna, we're in the practice of doing you know, communion every single week. So if you're on that team, that can be your cue. 
but you know, we went through this, you know, you know, imitate God. That's kind of the, the big thing of the day. And how do we do that? You know, we can be wise. We can be uh, bold. We can be loving. A lot of that sounds like a lot to do. Uh, if you want to do one, that's fine. And even normal, just as long as we do something with it. Um, but we ended with, you know, be loving for a particular reason. Um, you know, if we kind of take an inventory, like again, if our inner heart, our spirit is that you know, fuel gauge, the dial going between full and empty. If we're on the emptier side, we might, again, maybe not all of us, but we might have a love deficit, either in giving that out to other people or receiving that. So I wanted to re- read this again, Paul's word from one of the Corinthians letters. But just let's pay attention to this for a moment. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Just noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And before this week when I had read things like that, I thought it was about like, you know, living a loving lifestyle, which I think it is, but it doesn't say like, but I'm not loving. It says, but do not have love. That's having, that's internal, that's even receiving love. If we're feeling spread out or empty, I think a lot of that, and I'll, I'll, after communion, I'll take us through some, like some diagnostic questions that'll help us with this, but it might be a certain love deficit, either receiving it or, or giving it out. Uh, but I'm going to pray for us, and I'll speak it to that just a little bit more before, before we end. But let's pray together. Father, your son says that whenever ever we gather, that we should uh, do this in remembrance of him. You know, this uh, bread that represents his body, this juice that represents his blood. And uh, he probably did that because he knew that we needed to remember sometimes and needed to refocus and even be reminded of what love looks like. You know, Jesus says, like, you know, he came that we would have a full life. And I think that full means full of love and joy and peace and all those fruits of the Spirit. So in this moment, uh, we ask that your son Jesus does his work in us, whatever that work might be. I'll just pray that it's exactly what our hearts need, and you know exactly what that is. So help us receive. Help us look at ourselves in an accurate, um, forgiving, but also real way. It's in Jesus' name we all pray together. Amen. Um, in this way of, you know, kind of maybe putting balance to the side and more embracing a life where we're fully integrated and we just get to be the same person wherever we go. And by doing that, imitating God, whether that's through being wise or being bold or being uh, more loving or all three or just one. Uh, one thing I wanted to do was take some time, just a few questions that uh, you can ask yourself or even um, ask your family or your friends, those who are close to you, just kind of um, gauging how full, the right kind of full you're feeling in your life right now. Uh, so questions to ask yourself. One, just how long can I sustain my current pace? Am I feeling underappreciated? How much sleep have I been getting? Or has my devotional life been on the decline? Again, those four being how long can I sustain my current pace? Am I feeling underappreciated? How much sleep have I been getting? Has my devotional life been on the decline? Whatever the answers to those are, they could be indicative of um, how full uh, you're feeling now. And then just these two really good questions to ask of your friends and family. Ask them, when I'm with you, do you feel like I'm fully present? Some really good answers could come out of that.
but also just a very general open-ended question of, hey, what changes have you seen in me recently? Just a couple of questions. Uh, So we're going to sing one final song. We're hoping to see you next weekend to kind of wrap up the life series, kind of talking about legacy and what we want our lives to look like, you know, from the 20,000 foot view. Um, But, you know, this morning just wanted to be like, you know, let's imitate God and wisdom and boldness and love and experience the right kind of full that's found in Jesus. So let's stand up for a final song and we'll see you next week.